My guest is Liam Clegg. He is a business process analyst at Coping Corporation and formerly a visiting instructor at College of the Holy Cross. He has a Master of Science in Social Science from Caltech. Please enjoy the show. Hello. Hi. Right, I think we were just um, talking about how your day went and um, how you were a grad student prior to that. So, do you mind sharing the audience the research they did as a student? Uh, sure. So, my name is Liam Clegg, um, by the way, and uh, I went to graduate school for economics. And my main research in graduate school was on race and incarceration, uh, an economic analysis of race, incarceration, and crime. And um, I left without finishing my PhD. I taught economics for a few years, and then I got kind of burned out on academia at the same time that um, academia got kind of burned out on me and I uh, made a change and now I work in a factory and uh, I still solve problems and uh, study questions that are often quite interesting questions. Um, but it's a very different problem solving environment uh, working in manufacturing than in academia. Right. Can I just, um, I know we supposed to talk about the research, but um, you got me interested in um, why you got burned out um, from academia and the problems you're solving at the manufacturing firm that you're at now. Sure. So um, the company that I work for uh, makes small displays. Uh, which go in uh, augmented reality glasses or um, in weapon sites for the military. Uh, and there are many steps in manufacturing micro displays. And the company that I work for um, has been losing money for a number of years. And um, there are uh, some very good people who have been there for uh, many years. And there are now several of us new people who have come in the past year or so. And uh, we are trying to make the company profitable. And that means everything from uh, how the frontline workers do their jobs, uh, how pieces move through the manufacturing line, how the information systems are set up so that engineers can know what's going on. And that's actually been the main focus of my work for the past six months or so uh, has been giving the engineers better visibility into their processes because they we have these, uh, these marvelous machines um, that do phenomenal things that I don't uh, pretend to understand to produce uh, a display that 
has the same resolution as your laptop screen, but is the size of your fingernail. And uh, there's all sorts of things that goes on in these machines. And uh, many of the displays that come out of the process are no good. We have to throw them away. And uh, we have these very brilliant engineers who don't entirely know what's going on with the machines. And uh, simply because there's so much going on and so many steps, uh, so if something may be going wrong or just abnormally in a machine, and it may be affecting uh, how the displays come out in a way that doesn't show up until they get inspected, uh, maybe several weeks and several steps later in the process. So uh, without effective uh, information systems, the engineers who are in charge of the process where the problem was uh, may not even know they have a problem. And meanwhile, the uh, engineers later on or the quality director uh, knows that they've got some quality problems and they're throwing away a lot of parts, uh, but they're not sure where it's coming from. And so uh, my main focus has been on um, solving that visibility problem. And that means every, sometimes that means uh, writing code in Python. And sometimes that means uh, organizing calls with consultants. And uh, sometimes that means sitting down with operators and figuring out how they do their jobs and what they're looking at and what they're looking for. Sometimes it means sitting down with engineers, uh, trying to understand what they do. And so there's, there's really uh, a lot to learn. I, I learn new things every day and a lot of interesting questions to answer and problems to solve. So it seems like a very high level description. Um, do you actually do like mathematical techniques like perhaps um, linear programming or is it, or does it vary according to the need of that situation? So, I haven't done any linear programming and I don't expect to do so. Um, I would say the, there's, I haven't do, done anything particularly advanced mathematically explicitly um, in my work. I will say though that one thing that you may have found if you've studied a lot of math is that um, studying a lot of math improves your ability to think in ways that translate to other things. The one thing that uh, my boss, the vice president of operations has been working on with the engineers, some of whom have been there for a long time is uh, getting clear about the definitions of defects. So we have different things that can go wrong in the manufacturing process. Um, and we call these defects, but one has to differentiate between something that went wrong in a process and something that you 
gets discovered. Um, it's a problem with a part in that's being manufactured versus something that is unacceptable in a specification. So uh, there's this uh, kind of philosophical question about what's a defect versus what's a non-conformance versus what's a normal process variation, what's an out of control process. Uh, and these sorts of questions I've found uh, I can handle much better since studying a lot of math. I can imagine One other, that. Yeah. Sort of a side on that that's not about manufacturing. Um, the summer before I went to graduate school, but the summer before I started graduate school, I spent uh, some amount of time, not very long, but I spent some amount of time attempting to read Hegel's Phenomenology of Mind which is a very important, uh, very difficult book. And I couldn't, I couldn't read it. I mean, the sentences were too dense for me to understand what they were saying. Um, and I've, I'm pretty good at reading and I took a few philosophy classes, but it was just, I, I literally could not read it. And then I went to graduate school in social science at Caltech where for the first two years, I did a tremendous amount of math, uh, virtually no philosophy, certainly didn't read any uh, continental philosophy. Uh, but then the summer after my second year, I found the phenomenology of mind again and opened it up. And I was amazed at how much more easily I could read it, that I could read it even. Uh, there was a dramatic change in my ability to understand these complicated ideas. And I don't, I didn't finish it or, or come close. I don't claim to understand uh, Hegel's phenomenology of mind, but that's my most uh, poignant experience with how studying math allowed me to understand other things. What made you want to read Hegel? Um, because I think I attempted to read the same book as well. I don't think I get I got past the first chapter at all. Yeah, well, I recommend uh, Alexander Kojev's lectures, uh, which are they were literal lectures that he gave in France in uh, maybe the nineteen thirties, uh, which which break the book down quite well. So if you want to understand the ideas, I recommend that. Um, I knew it was an important book in the genealogy of Western knowledge um, and had inspired everything from Marxism to second wave feminism uh, and was this sort of unifying thread or unifying uh, source for all sorts of ideas and all sorts of ideas uh, which are very different from economics as I've studied it and as I understand it. So it was a, an attempt to understand this uh, very popular 
mode of thinking that is uh, failure fairly different from my own. So I just want to jump to economics and um, there are several threats. One is that um, what which part of economics do you teach and which part, which part of economics do you enjoy the most? So economics to me is really a way of thinking. Economics is thinking about social relations, generally human social relations, but not always, as arising from the individually rational behavior of many different agents. So this is different from the way that uh, many people think about things. So we don't think about uh, an overarching spirit of history. Um, we don't think about groups of people acting in accordance with their group identity or on behalf of the group. We can think of people acting as individuals. Uh, we don't focus on um, the psychology or the, um, the sociology of people's decisions, although we do we are aware of such things and we do talk about them sometimes. Uh, but we, economics is the study of social relations, things that happen between people, everything from normal buying and selling to uh, the creation of a slave system as we are uh, going to talk about today. Um, and thinking about that as arising from individual people making their best choices in their particular situations. So my, I, I studied a bunch of different things uh, in graduate school and plausibly one reason that I failed at academia and I'm doing much better in the private sector is that I couldn't stay focused on one thing for long enough and to be a successful academic uh, you have to be a, a, in economics at least you have to find a question and find a way to answer it and answer it and then uh, sell your answer and you have to be willing to do that for at least five years for any particular question that from the beginning of a research project to publishing and very experienced researchers might uh, be able to crank through that process a bit faster, but even for many veteran researchers, uh, it's at least a five-year cycle. And I could study the same question for two years, but uh, I'm constantly getting interested in new things constantly finding new questions that interest me. Um, so the, the research that I kind of settled on in graduate school uh, was on race incarceration and crime. And specifically, I found a way to estimate the impact of black and white incarceration rates on crime rates. And I discovered, I, I was surprised 
this was something that uh, I found in the data and not something I look, went looking for, but I was surprised to find evidence that increases in the white incarceration rate in the US during the 1970s and 80s had had a significant, uh, had led to a significant reduction in crime. Whereas the uh, substantial increases in the black incarceration rates in the same period uh, had not reduced crime. And this initially was a surprising uh, empirical finding, but it, it appeared to be robust in the data. And it was also consistent with a fair amount of sociological and criminological work that a lot of other scholars um, have done on race and crime. So for instance, if you expect to be punished, whether or not you commit crimes, then you don't have much reason not to commit crimes. And there's substantial evidence that in many times and places in America, Black people, particularly young black men, have had a high likelihood of getting in trouble with the law and ending up in prison, whether or not they were committing uh, serious crimes. And at the same time, uh, an issue, a parallel issue that gets less attention, but um, people like Jill Iovi uh, have talked about, is that a lot of black on black crime doesn't get prosecuted. A lot of uh, young black men in America have literally gotten away with murder. They've killed other young black men. And uh, the police sometimes make a cursory investigation. Nobody wants to talk to them. Um, so they put the file on a shelf and move on. Uh, and the Los Angeles County Police Department supposedly has a, or at one time had a trailer full of files of unsolved murder cases. And most of those are young black men killing other young black men. So looking at crime as a problem of economic incentives, it seemed actually quite consistent with these other strains of the legal and sociological literature that I would find that putting more black people in prison didn't seem to reduce crime. Whereas putting more white people in prison did seem to reduce crime because for white Americans, generally, uh, if you don't commit crimes, you don't go to prison. If you do, you might. So just to explore um, the idea, it seems like there's um, implied, it's implied that there's a form of racism against the blacks. And um, I just want to get your thoughts. Like you can go high level or low level as you want on this issue. And the reason I'm asking that is because um, I think as an, an American, um, it's easy for an American to just take for assumption um, this racism that exists. But as a Singaporean, I think um, I was brought up in education system whereby we kind of um, emphasize 
racial harmony and whether there are like loopholes in the system and there's another issue but um i'm just curious how you see things from your anger yeah so well and we emphasize uh racial harmony or something like that in our educational system too but uh, that's uh we still have um, this legacy of racism. So, well, that was a question that I uh, found myself getting stuck on. And I should interject here and say, when I say racism, um, I'm talking in the American context, what I really mean is anti-blackness, this uh, specific prejudice or oppression against uh, people of African descent, particularly the descendants of the former slaves. And I, there's, there are various prejudices uh, against Chinese people or Mexicans or whatever. And I'm not saying that those aren't important, but I think they are, uh, as they're separate or they're at least not the same as anti-blackness, which is a specific thing that I think is uniquely American and that has this unique history of coming from the American slave system. So I think the, what exactly is racism in America uh, is a very difficult question. There's, there are a lot of things that has been over the years. There are many things that it is not anymore there is much reason to think it is still something. And I will say that I, I will punt on the ultimate question of what racism in America is and say that uh, the, the most interesting black American intellectuals whom I've found writing about race are Glenn Lowry, who's an economist, and Jody David Armour, who's a law professor. And they both have very deep and nuanced and interesting things to say about the nature of American racism. Um, but it was by, in the process of studying this question for my research, one of the things about economics is uh, it forces you to be clear about what you mean. If I say, you know, there's police racism, do I, or there's racism in the criminal justice system, do I mean black people are more likely to be arrested in the same situation? Do I mean they're more likely to be convicted if they're arrested? Uh, do I mean that they're more likely to uh, be accused of crimes or any number of other things. Um, and if as an economist reading the work of legal scholars and sociologists, many of them are uh, not nearly so precise. So uh, I found myself having to do a lot of my own uh, rigorizing of the, the arguments. Um, but
but I did, I got, that, that led me to this question of where did this racism, this anti-blackness come from? And it's clearly uh, in large part descended from this racialized slave system that we had in this country until the Civil War um, in 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation in the midst of the Civil War ended American slavery. Uh, so we had this slave system, but where did that come from? Uh, because that it's actually uh, fairly different from most other slave systems in recorded history. Um, and it's also uh, not particularly great for anyone involved. It's, obviously bad for the slaves that's uh we don't need to belabor that point but it's also uh, it wasn't particularly great for the slave owners either uh, you can imagine you have a bunch of workers uh, who hate you and you can't fire them and you have to convince them to pick cotton that turns out to be a difficult problem uh, even if you have the uh, legal right to beat them within an inch of death or to be legal authority to beat them to death, uh, that uh, doesn't actually translate into a ready ability to get them to work productively for you. Uh, so, and uh, Kenneth Stamp's book, The Peculiar Institution, which was written in the 1950s, um, really uh, is a, a very interesting history of slavery and particularly of slavery as it existed right before the Civil War. And the uh, what it was like owning slaves and what it was like living in a slave society and just the, the really terrible costs that slavery imposed on everyone in the American South and in the nation as a whole. Uh, I think that many people have intuitively have this idea that life is zero sum, that if things are, that since slavery was so bad for slaves, that it must have been really great for the slave owners. But anyone who studied a little bit of economics knows that that's, of course, not how the world works. And uh, one situation can be mutually beneficial for two parties, and those same two parties could find themselves in another situation that was mutually detrimental. So, and this is something that uh, perhaps rightly, we don't really learn about much. And I mean, we learn about slavery in elementary school and again, throughout our schooling in America. Uh, we don't, I don't recall ever learn, really learning in any serious way about what it was like to own slaves what kind of problems the slave owners faced. 
they were just sort of in the background as these bad guys. And uh, it's one style of question that has always interested me and that interested me as a researcher is why do humans do the, the, the worst things that we do to each other? And why do they do those things in particular? Um, so this, this was how I got uh, very curious about where this slave system had come from. And because there's a certain way that you can see how it would persist once it was in place, there's a, it, gets kind of locked in both to the economy and the culture. Um, buying a slave means uh, paying for their expected lifetime wages in advance, right? So once you've paid for a slave, uh, you don't want to have to pay them anymore to get their labor. So I can sort of see how it would be hard to get out of the American slave system once we had it. Uh, but I, it still was not obvious where the system had come from. And as I dug into the historical literature, I found that it wasn't obvious to the historians either. And that there was, it was in fact uh, a question of live debate among historians where the slave system had come from, why uh, the early colonists had moved to this slave system and in particular this racialized slave system, uh, whether slavery had come first uh, and then the racism that, and, and, um, or the anti-blackness or the special status of black people uh, had come second or whether the anti-blackness had been there originally and had led to slavery. This is a, this apparently is an open question among historians. So um, I started looking on my own at this question and uh, I studied it for a year and came up with uh, an answer that I find uh, as plausible or more plausible than anything else. So do you mind sharing what's answer? Or? Yeah, uh, this is yeah, this has been all building up to the uh, the main question, right? The, yeah, where did the American slave system come from? So. Uh, the conclusion I came to was that the basic problem um, slavery was designed to solve was uh, bonded laborers running away. And that by having a racialized slave system, uh, anyone who was black or anyone who had dark skin could be presumed to be a slave. So if you saw a black person just walking around or running, uh, you could know immediately that 
they weren't supposed to be there, that they were supposed that they were somebody's slave. And that this solved a problem that the Virginia tobacco planters of the 17th century had and um, in turn locked in this uh, racialized hereditary slave system. So there are, there are several uh, kind of separate points that I should make um, in talking about this. And if you have uh, specific questions that you wanna jump in with, please do. Um, otherwise, I can talk about this stuff um, indefinitely. Yeah, sure, just, just go ahead. It sounds like you're going to give a lecture on it, which I'm keen to listen to. All right, so a few um, sort of preliminary things. Uh, first, English common law. So common law is a tradition uh, which goes back to the medieval times in Britain. Uh, and it is law that is made by judges. So people have a dispute, they go before a judge, the judge makes a ruling. Sometime later, some different people have a similar dispute, they go before a different judge. Uh, that judge attempts to make the same ruling that the former judge had made. And uh, over time, this body of law builds up and then it gets uh, kind of compiled uh, by Bracton in the 13th century, and then uh, again by Blackstone in the 18th century. Um, but yet studied, this, this body of law uh, is studied by, by lawyers and jurists. And because it develops organically, this way, um, it becomes uh, efficient. And this, this is one of the key insights of the law and economics literature, that without knowing any economic theory, just with some random variation, um, when people go before a judge and they have a dispute, it's because uh, the law was unclear or it tends, it was more likely if the law was unclear or if the law was inefficient. And if the judge makes an efficient ruling, then in the future, uh, people are less likely to have disputes that require adjudication. So, uh, the common law, as it evolved organically, came up with these, um, these notions that we can look at today with the benefit of economic theory and theoretical law and economics and see that these are incentive compatible mechanisms that, uh, that grew up. And this is different from, and so this is the, 
the legal tradition in Britain and places that uh, are former British colonies. The other common uh, European legal system uh, is called civil law, which is derived from Roman law. And uh, civil law is a, a pre-codified legal system. So the, the state makes laws and then those are the laws. So uh, some of the laws in the civil law are not efficient and there's not this same mechanism for them to become efficient that the common law had. So one difference that was apparent um, in the 17th and 18th centuries between the common law and civil law countries was that the civil law countries were crueler. Um, so France uh, famously had, uh, had legal torture um, as part of its legal system through the 18th century up until the French Revolution. Um, Britain had abolished torture um, in the 17th century. The uh, Spanish and Portuguese colonists in South America uh, imposed slave systems based on the slave system in Roman law. Uh, the common law has no system of slavery. So the English colonists who settled Virginia brought with them a more evolved, we might even say more civilized legal tradition than the uh, Portuguese colonists who settled Brazil uh, or the other European colonists who settled the islands throughout the Caribbean and other places in South and Central America. Um, so it's somewhat surprising that the, uh, the American colonists should come up with the most severe and harsh form of slavery. So Brazil was one of the few countries in the Western hemisphere that still had slavery at the time of the United States Civil War. Um, but in the Brazilian slave system, there was no ban on race mixing. So uh, black and Spanish and Indian people uh, mixed and interbred and the Brazilians are uh, all manner of racial mix. Um, many of the island plantations were staffed um, primarily or entirely with slaves who were imported from Africa, worked for their lifetime um, or worked for some period of years and then generally died in service. Uh, but the, the notion of the American notion of this whole separate cast of people who were racially distinct and who are born into slavery by dint of their skin color and their parentage 
is something that didn't exist anywhere else in the new world. And it's something that in my reading is, um, exists nowhere else in history, with the possible exception of uh, the Jews in Egypt in the book of Exodus. So it's, uh, it's a historically surprising thing that these particular people came up with this particular system. Uh, and this is why some of the explanations that other historians have offered, I find unconvincing. Uh, I've, I've read, you know, dozens of different texts about the origins of slavery at, at different levels and something I've seen a couple of places cited as a supposed cause um, is that uh, in the late 17th century tobacco prices fell to a penny a pound and this this notion of tobacco prices falling to a penny a pound is invoked um, at least the two different places that I've read as a cause for the American slave system. Um, but the first of all, uh, that's only um, a modest decline from 1.2 cents a pound or 10 shillings to the hundred weight that tobacco sold for in the good times. Uh, but more importantly, many export-based monoculture economies have experienced swings in their commodity prices of 17% or more, and only one of them has ever created a system of racialized chattel slavery. So it's, it just doesn't, uh, it, it's not a satisfying explanation to me. So um, we talked about common law and civil law. Now, let me say uh, more, fill in some more detail about the settlement of the Virginia colony. Uh, so the, the Virginia colony was the first colony of what became the United States of America. Um, the first permanent English settlement there was in 1607 in Jamestown. Um, the first record of African slaves coming into the colony was in 1619 as uh, a date that a year that has has now been um, publicized by the famous or perhaps infamous 1619 project. Um, and we don't have a lot of records from that time, but uh, Early on, the colonists weren't sure what they were going to do in Virginia. They thought maybe they would find some natives whom they could subdue and enslave. Maybe they would find some mineral wealth. Uh, maybe they would find a river to the Pacific. They didn't find any of those things. Uh, what they did find was some very good soil. And uh, eventually they found that they could grow tobacco in the soil. And tobacco is a great thing to be growing and exporting because it's an addictive drug. And uh, exporting addictive drugs uh, is a great business 
if you can get into it. So the Virginia economy grew up around tobacco planting over the course of the 17th century. You with me so far? It's a little hard for certain parts, but just go ahead because I think um, the issues I have are more of like, I lack exposure to the <clears throat> historical context. That's not something that I've been exposed to. So, um, so please ask questions because this is, um, this is why it's great to do it in this dialogue format. Because I've been, I've spent a lot of time studying these things, and I'm also an American, so uh, I forget what uh, kind of things I need to explain. So no, I, I think the question I have is not so much of the details, but more of um, the. I think I have an issue or, or or concern regarding social sciences is that sometimes you come up with theories to explain um, certain phenomena. But um, I think it's kind of a Nassim Taleb's idea that that perhaps um, we just create stories to um, fit the narrative and that may not be the truth or, or there may be like other factors that I play that we, we don't account for. So I'm just curious in, in your own research and, and the research you've seen of other people, how, how do, you, do you feel that this is actually an issue that has cropped up or is this something you've considered before? Yeah, so that's that's always an issue um, in social science, and particularly in history. You know, in 1984, George Orwell says, "Whoever controls the present controls the past. Whoever controls the past controls the future." So, any story we tell about history. Uh, has implications for how we understand ourselves in the world today and what kind of future we create. Uh, so there are certainly, uh, there's certainly uh, plenty of motivated reasoning, we might say, in the study of history. I think um, The reason I got into this was in part in reaction to that and um, seeing that a lot of the historical accounts for the origins of slavery that I was finding seemed to be um, seemed to be particularly convenient for the people who were uh, promoting them. It's quite popular among uh, white Marxist anti-racists to uh, hold that the racialized slave system was created after Bacon's rebellion in 1676 to divide uh, white indentured servants and peasants from black slaves so that they wouldn't gang up and rebel against their plantation overlords together as they had in that rebellion. Uh, I don't think that that's uh, consistent with the historical record um, on a number of accounts. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, 
this is um, part of why it's so valuable to study a lot of math, to do social science, that it, it is ultimately, un, the kind of thing I'm describing is ultimately unprovable. But from studying mathematics and from studying history, from studying other things, uh, one can develop an aesthetic judgment for historical arguments and for arguments in general and see whether they uh, make sense. So it's sure it's always possible to um, it's always possible to dismiss any particular historical account by saying, well, you know, you don't really know what happened. Maybe there were other factors and uh, maybe this is just uh, a narrative to promote some particular ideas. But uh, for me as an American, I uh, have to, I live in this country and this country used to have slavery. And uh, the fact that this country used to have slavery is important and will remain so. And uh, so one needs to answer the question, why did we have this system of slavery? Um, so even though it might not be possible to give a definitive answer, um, incontrovertible proof, the way that you might be able to in a mathematical argument, uh, I need some answer to this question in order to be a citizen of my country. So this is the, the best I can do. Right, so I think at this point, it'd be helpful to for the audience and myself to just actually give a broad, um, high overview of like the points that you were discussing about. So, by that I meant, I think you covered um how how the the law, the legal system in place, encourage certain behaviors, and how there was there were arguments whereby it's actually the price of tobacco that led to um the slavery system. So, so what's the roadmap from there? So uh, I have jumped around a bit and um, I uh, thank you for uh, kind of reining me in here uh, because I am, I am liable to go any number of directions. So. Right. Um, so just to interrupt, I, I think it's going to go in different directions, but I think if, yeah. if you can paint a, a higher, high level picture first, then definitely details, I think they'll help audience and myself sure. to follow along so um let me say a little bit more about the the basic uh historical situation that i'm talking about 17th century virginia and um then I'm going to talk about the 
uh, economic problem that people faced that led them to pursue something like slavery. And then I'm going to talk about why the particular system of racialized chattel slavery solved this problem. Then I will talk about the economic evidence for this, um, this theory that I'm putting forth. And then I'll talk about the uh, textual evidence in the laws of the time. Okay, that sounds great. So let's just um, jump into it. And, and it'd be great if you can signpost at certain points as well. Absolutely. Uh, and thank you. You're, you're a very generous host. This is my first time being on a podcast and I'm used to teaching with a blackboard. So um, thank you for, for helping me out here. No, I think that also, I was wondering as well, it would be so much easier if we could get like a blackboard, like you said, but um, I think when we do things in audio form, I think just signposts thing will help a lot. Absolutely. So, um, so Virginia, it was a few thousand people in the early 17th century. Uh, one important thing to know, in 1618, the, uh, the governors of Virginia uh, created a system called the headright system, under which any person who came into the colony who paid their way to come into the, the colony or anyone who paid for someone else to come into the colony uh, got a grant of 50 acres of land. And this is very nice farmland on the Chesapeake, um, on the Chesapeake Bay, some of the finest soil in the world. Um, so if you could get somebody to come plant it, uh, you got 50 acres. So um, the, the planters had effectively unlimited land. Uh, they were just in this little outpost on the coast that grew slowly over the decades of the 17th century, and they had no shortage of land. Um, they occasionally uh, bought wars with the Indians. Um, and they also had some diplomatic and trade relations uh, with the Indians at different times. And this is where, this is the era that the story of Pocahontas comes from, which some people are familiar from the Disney movie. Um, but this is, this is a situation that has not often, ha often happened uh, in history, that there's been unlimited farmland and a shortage of workers. Um, in 1650, we don't have nearly complete records for who claimed head rights when, um, but we, one of the records we do have is a man named Anthony Johnson, who was uh, from Angola, Africa, and he had come into the colony as a slave and uh, or perhaps as an indentured servant. Um, it's not, slavery didn't maybe really exist in the first half of the 17th century. Um, but Anthony Johnson uh, 
bought um, five slaves of his own. Actually, I believe it was two African slaves and three English indentured servants that he paid for uh, to bring into the colony. And so he claimed a head right of 250 acres and set himself up 250 acre tobacco plantation. Uh, and while he's the most famous, there are records of uh, several other black, um, in many cases, African born um, tobacco farmers who owned their own land, uh, who employed English indentured servants or slaves of their own. Uh, and so there, there, while there were some African slaves um, because the, the Europeans began uh, buying and raiding slaves from the African coast in the mid 15th century, um, it was by no means uh, a, they, slaves were by no means the only kind of Africans in Virginia in the early days. By uh, 1671, when Sir William Barclay gave a report on the population of Virginia, he said the population was 40,000, um, which included 6,000 indentured servants, mostly from Britain and 2,000 slaves, Negro slaves, as he called them. So the bonded labor force, and um, if I haven't defined it yet, an indentured servant was someone who came, uh, often a poor boy, who came from England and agreed to work for a set period of time, typically seven years, uh, for the person who paid their passage. And then after seven years, uh, they were free. So um, in 1671, the bonded labor force is three quarters English. Um, by 1700, less than 30 years later, um, the bound labor force was 95% African or African descended slaves. So there's this uh, rather rapid takeover of slavery of the economy that happens in the last three decades of the 17th century. And um, throughout the time, planting tobacco was still the main, the main business um, that people were engaged in here. Can you picture that? Yeah, I'm trying to get a th that image, and I'm just can you explain more about the indentured um labor they mentioned a bit, like sure. Um, so yeah, and this um carries into my next point, which is about the the general economic problem. So the general economic problem is there are firms who want to employ workers, um, but they need uh, to, the workers need some sort of human capital investment 
before they're employable. And the there are people who want to work, but they themselves have no way to pay for the human capital investment um, that would be required to make them qualified to work. And uh, while the firms could pay for the human capital, um, then that's only worth it if the workers come and work for them. And if a firm pays for somebody's human capital investment and then they go work for a different firm, that firm's out of luck. Uh, so this is actually a, a common economic problem. And the way that we solve this right now in the United States is that the federal government guarantees student loans so that if you're an American citizen, even if your family doesn't have any money and doesn't have any collateral, uh, you can borrow money to go to college. And then the uh, government will guarantee your loan if you don't pay it back. Uh, the federal government will use its tax authority to uh, collect on the loan on behalf of the creditor. Uh, so that's the contemporary American solution. Um, in the 17th century, the uh, initial solution to this uh, was indenture. So um, sometimes a planter would advertise in England and uh, contract directly with, uh, through agents with boys who are young men typically, who wanted to come over to Virginia to pursue their fortune. And uh, a young man would agree to work seven years for a planter. The planter would uh, pay the young man's passage across the Atlantic. Um, he would come over and then he would be legally obligated to work for seven years uh, for uh, his master. Sometimes uh, also there were speculators who would, uh, who would engage young men in England in uh, indenture contracts uh, for, without a particular master. And so they would, these would be people with some amount of capital, find a bunch of young men, say, hey, who wants to go to Virginia? Um, I'll pay your way. You just have to agree to work seven years to whoever I can get to pay me back when we get there. And so the speculator would bring a group of young men over and then uh, line them up on the dock and sell their indenture contracts uh, to planters. And uh, planters who uh, had, even if they didn't have land, if they bought an indenture contract, they would get 50 acres. And 50 acres was actually a lot more land than one man could work. Uh, one worker could generally work one or two acres of tobacco. Uh, though that each field could only be planted uh, every several years because tobacco is so rough on the soil. 
So that's uh, indentured servitude in a nutshell. Um, the problem for the planters was that um, once a young man got there, they had every incentive to try to get out of their indentured contract because once you're there, um, everybody's trying to hire workers. So if you can escape your master's plantation and get far enough away that he can't bring you back, um, you can find someone else who will pay you for your labors. And so indentured servants in Virginia um, and Maryland were often uh, absconding to the Dutch plantations as they were called, it's now Pennsylvania and New York up north. So that's indentured servitude in a nutshell. Did you have other questions you want to ask? So, so just to summarize, it seems like people are exploiting the system that um, the indenture um, servitude is like a ticket to get to that land. And once they get to the area, they are incentivized to like seek higher pay by escaping and going to, to, to a different geographic area. Is that a fair um, summary? Yeah, that, that's a fair that's a fair summary. And it's the same basic problem as uh, if you're, if an employer uh, sends their workers to a fancy training, expensive training program, then uh, the workers are now more qualified uh, to go get better jobs. And so this is, this is a real problem that employers deal with. Right. Uh, I, I did have a follow-up on um, the part whereby you mentioned the, the modern system is by the federal government kind of like, um, I, I forgot the term, but they, they, they take accountability for the student loan. But, it's, yeah. um, but from what I understand of student loan in America is that it can be crippling. It can be, it can rack up the huge amount Yes. So what are your thoughts on the student loan system in America right now? Um, I think that that's uh, it's an interesting question, but I think it's going to take us too far afield. And I, right. uh, I want to keep my head in 17th century Virginia or old. Okay, I'll sure. Get too lost. Um, and so th this is the basic problem that that the tobacco planters had. And uh, there are not uh, many records of runaways. Uh, people who have learned about the history of slavery have, or perhaps familiar with newspaper ads for runaway slaves uh, from the 19th century. Uh, in the 17th century, though, there was uh, one printing press in the colony of Virginia, and people got in trouble for using it uh, with the colonial authorities. So uh, there was nothing like, there are nothing like surviving ads for uh, runaway slaves. What, what we do have, one of the uh, most well-preserved 
things that we inherit from the Virginia colony is uh, the statutes that the Virginia House of Burgess has passed starting in 1619. Uh, so these were all, the, the House of Burgesses was the, the governing authority. And it was, to my understanding, uh, simply a group of men uh, who represented uh, themselves and their interests and who got together to decide how they would govern themselves. Um, this is a colony the size of uh, one small city or large town, uh, a few tens of thousands of people. Uh, but they wrote down all the laws that they passed, and then those were preserved over the years. Um, they were finally published as a historical document in um, the 1820s. Uh, but from looking through these, and I spent a fair amount of time looking, just looking through the, all the statutes, and you can actually find them all on um, archive.org called something like the statutes at large being a collection of the acts of the Virginia House of Burgesses. Um, they are uh, mostly quite practical attempts to deal with practical problems. There's uh, people are drinking too much and getting into fights. So they're going to impose a tax on liquor. Um, the uh, quality of the horse stock seems to be declining. So uh, there's going to be a law that if you have a horse shorter than uh, some height that you have to keep it in a fence or geld it. Um, the waterways are becoming polluted with uh, trash uh, and sometimes dead bodies. Uh, thrown off of ships, so we're going to outlaw that. Um, and the tax rates were set every year. Um, these sorts of things. And among these are uh, a number of laws dealing with uh, runaway slaves, runaway uh, servants and slaves, I should say, because as I mentioned earlier, in 1671, the bonded labor force was three quarters indentured servants. So uh, from 1663 to 1686, um, a period of under 25 years, um, there were at least eight different statutes that they passed dealing with runaways. And this was a real problem. Um, and this is a problem with no solution in the common law, right? The idea of, um, because this problem of unlimited land, but limited labor force uh, hadn't existed in England, um, for centuries. And uh, in fact, England had had the opposite problem. 
uh, for the centuries leading up to the 17th century of uh, following the enclosure movement of a shortage of land and a surplus of workers. So, um, in the statutes, the first they, there's a law saying that runaways will be pursued at public expense. Then um, they a reward of a thousand pounds of tobacco, which was as much as one man could produce in a year, um, for catching a runaway. But then that led to problems because uh, people would you have a servant quote unquote run away and then the, their friend would catch it and bring them to the magistrate and say, look, I caught this runaway uh, who ran away from my neighbor. Where's my thousand pounds of tobacco? So the reward was reduced the next year to 200 pounds. Eventually that was repealed. Um, but there is this um, it's clear from the laws that runaways uh, are a real problem. So at the same time that, that this is happening, um, in 1688, there's a glorious revolution in England um, during which, or as a result of which, Parliament gains additional authority um, then actually perhaps or arguably because uh, parliament now has authority over the public purse the king has greater ability to borrow um, because people are more willing to lend money to someone who uh, is answerable to some other authority uh, so the king um James, I believe it was, uh, borrows uh, a tremendous amount of money from the public, just selling bonds, uh, and goes and fights a nine years war against France. So the uh, transatlantic slave ships uh, were crossing the Atlantic dozens a year um, by the late 17th century, uh, but the traffic slowed down significantly during the Nine Years' War, and uh, very few made it up as far as Virginia. Are you with me still? I'm starting to, am I getting off, uh, am I yeah, I, I, I'm following so far. So I'm just trying to make the leap between um, how the state is trying to tighten down on runaways and how is that they're shifting towards slavery system. Yeah, and I think um, there's something that Lorena Walsh points out um, in her, and she's one of the most prolific historians of slavery. But in one of her more recent works, that the the 
the large trend, the overall transition to slavery happened fairly late. Um, sometime in the last three decades, but it, by her reckoning of the historical records, it really had to be 1680s to 1690s. Um, but there had been some slavery and particularly the most elite members of the, the Virginia colony had had slaves uh, back to, to the beginning. And in fact, she cites some historical evidence that there were some slaves in the colony before the famous 1619 arrival. So the, the problem for the Virginia tobacco planters is how to um, keep people working on their plantations, right? They have capital, they can bring people over, um, but it's not worth it to bring someone over if they run away after a few years. And they, a slave or indentured servant, they both have this same problem. Um, so in 1691, uh, the Virginia House of Burgesses passed what I think is the, the definitive law that created the racialized American slave system. It's called an act for suppressing outlying slaves it begins, whereas many times Negroes, mulattoes, and other slaves unlawfully absent themselves from their masters and mistresses' servants and lie hid and lurk in obscure places, killing hogs and committing other injuries to the inhabitants of this dominion. For remedy whereof for the future, be it enacted by their majesty's lieutenant governor, council, and burgesses of this present general assembly, and the authority thereof, that it is hereby enacted that in all such cases upon intelligence of any such Negroes, mulattoes, or other slaves lying out, two of their majesty's justices of the peace of that county were of one to be of the quorum, where such Negroes, mulattoes, or other slaves shall be, shall be empowered and commanded, and are hereby empowered and commanded to issue out their warrants, and so on, uh, saying that any slaves, and not just any slaves, but Negroes, mulattoes, and other slaves uh, found about shall be apprehended. Uh, the law goes on to uh, forbid uh, any English or other white man or woman being free uh, from intermarrying with a Negro, Negro, mulatto, or Indian man or woman, um, or if they if they get married, then they have to leave the colony within three months. Wait, sorry, uh, um, I'm I'm missing the link. So, so why did they make this leap to that seems to be very prejudiced against the blacks? Well, previously um, it was economic problem, but now it seems like. I don't I'm quite going, get the link. Yeah. I'm going to argue that it was because they needed to catch runaway slaves. And that by creating this system wherein all the slaves are 
dark-skinned and all the dark-skinned people are slaves, it became much easier to catch slaves. And so that's why, um, that's why an act for suppressing outlying slaves has these provisions uh, against interracial marriage, right? Interracial marriage uh, doesn't have, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with suppressing outlying slaves um, unless your system of suppressing outlying slaves, of preventing runaways and catching runaways uh, involves maintaining this color line. Right, okay. I, I think, um, I don't think I know enough to, to, to provide a counter argument, but um, I think that's one factor that, that definitely seems possible. Yeah, so I, you can imagine this is a, an outpost in a wild land, right? This is um, by this point, maybe a, a dozen little towns, each of, of a few hundred people and tobacco fields, uh, men really on their own in the world, um, trying to hold together some kind of civilization against this these terrifying forces of nature of uh, freezing brutal winters some years of droughts of disease of uh, varying relations with the natives and sometimes uh, including brutal wars uh, and then a few miles in just this vast wild country so trying to keep people in place and this is actually uh, something that i i don't remember where i read this but uh, i read somewhere else recently that in ancient times in the ancient cities of mesopotamia and samaria uh, places like that, the, one of the biggest problems that the leaders of cities had was keeping people inside the cities. People much preferred to go out into the wild. And so in the, in the Virginia colony, it was the same, this kind of ancient problem that came back for these for these planters and for the leaders of this little planting colony, how do they keep people, how do they keep the workers on their plantations? Because there's a, just a big wild world for them to run away to. Right, so I think I'm, once you put that geographic skill and, and the lack of probably technology into perspective, I think it makes a lot more sense because like the skin color becomes a heuristic. Exactly. Exactly. The skin color becomes a reliable heuristic. 
Um, and the, the act, uh, the, the, the last provision, um, of the act is that no Negro or mulatto be after the end of this present session of assembly set free by any person or persons whatsoever, unless such person or persons, their heirs, executors, or administrators pay for the transportation of such Negro or Negroes out of the country within six months. So if you have a dark skinned slave and you free them, you have to get them out of Virginia. Um, there, there are not going to be allowed to be free blacks in the colony. And this, um, I think, it doesn't make much sense unless um, you see this as a way of, inf of making this heuristic reliable. Right. Um, and it's really on your side. I don't take out too much of your time. So um, maybe I'll just end with a final question if that's okay with you. Uh, sure. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I've perhaps rambled a bit. Um, can, I, uh, can I mention the uh, sort of other piece of my, uh, my evidence that I claim to have assembled here? Sure, sure. So um, the, the way I came up with for estimating the impact of this law um, was I wrote down an economic model for the value of a slave. And the value of a slave is a function of the expected length of servitude of that slave, uh, the real interest rate, the price of tobacco, and uh, the amount of tobacco that a slave picks. And while I don't have any direct, so while I don't have any direct evidence on runaways, um, I, I do have historical evidence on the prices that were paid for slaves um, in Virginia at different points in time. And uh, I, have, I have historical data on the price of tobacco, um, the productivity of a worker, and the uh, real interest rate. So that is how I am able to estimate that um, the probability of losing a slave in any given year um, was in the 1680s um, was around 12%. And by the early 1700s, it was down to closer to six to 8%. Um, and that's estimated based on the prices paid for slaves in Virginia being around 20 pounds sterling in 1680, um, but going up to close to 35 pounds sterling on average 
by the early 1700s. And with this, with Virginians being willing to pay more for slaves, many more slave ships started making the extra voyage up to Virginia. And so this is where slavery really uh, took off, uh, was these additional imports. And that change is not something that I've seen. I haven't seen that identified as a historical fact um, in the existing literature, uh, but it's quite consistent with my interpretation of this 1691 statute. Right. I think it'd be great, like, if you don't mind, I, I can probably host your the, the report you sent me or maybe Dropbox or something like that. And I can put that link into show notes so that I think, and it's hard to read like math formulas. It's hard to like, um, how should I put it? It's hard to understand math formulas and sure, uh, over audio. So yeah, so I think just linking that, um, if you don't mind, I can, I can just upload it on the Dropbox and I can let people take a look at it. Yeah, so I sent you earlier some slides that I had put together. Uh, I never got as far as writing this up into a full paper, um, but I had presented it in, internally um, at a workshop uh, while I was teaching at Holy Cross, and I sent you those slides, uh, PJ. So yes, you're welcome to put those up. Okay, um, just a final question, if you don't mind. I know, like, because you told me you woke up at 5 a.m., and it's like, 11 plus p.m. on your side so I feel bad <laughs> about holding you up um just, just a final question um uh, in, in the context of how um, Black Lives Matter is taking account of like the national spotlight again how do you feel that your research is relevant to to this context it's a very interesting question I think that I think that we don't have a great understanding of our own history in this country, particularly of the history of slavery. And I don't think that, um, I, I, have, I have many good things to say about Black Lives Matter and I've had friends who were Black Lives Matter activists when I was on the West Coast. Um, I don't think that the Black Lives Matter movement is particularly helping with that, um, with that problem. And I think there is, I think part of the underlying racial conflict in this country or the under, even just the underlying racial misunderstandings in this country do come from these different and in some cases irreconcilable understandings uh, of our own history and of our nation's history that many Americans hold. And I, I think we've seen that um, more, we've seen that poignantly in a a couple of recent examples like the 1619 project of the New York Times, um, which, and then the, uh, the debate and controversy that then surrounded that. Um, we saw it 
in when Colin Kaepernick, the football player turned activist, uh, told, I believe, Nike, you know, not to make this shoe with a Betsy Ross flag on it, that the, the original flag of the United States. Um, there's that, yes, that one big aspect of debates about race relations in this country today is certainly debates about history. So um, to the extent that anyone wants a theory of the origins of slavery that's actually consistent with the uh, economic and textual evidence, um, what I have to offer may be useful to you. But one of the reasons that I prefer uh, now manufacturing to academia is that um, I think most people choose their uh, view of history by what lets them hold the opinions they have already or that they would like to hold. As you yourself suggested earlier. Um, I have a natural follow-up question. I'm not sure that you have time to answer that. Oh, that, that's fine. I'm, I'm up late anyway. Okay. Um, I, I think you mentioned how I mean, like I suggested as well, how people choose the narratives that that accommodate the actions, um, and and I do think about actually game theory quite a fair bit as well. So, do you think there's a way to design a system whereby people act less in that manner? Uh, no. I I might have thought that at some time, but no, I think that the, the more reliable solution is for people to cultivate an aesthetic sensibility and to cultivate an appreciation for beauty. And with a, an appreciation for beauty, one develops uh, a sense of truth and an ability to see truth. And I think that is ultimately more reliable than anything we can come up with with game theory and mechanism design. All right. Um, thank you so much for the conversation today. Um, don't hold up more of your time. I know it's been a super long day for you. Um, yeah, oh, it's also, been my yeah. pleasure, PJ. It, this, this was something that I was very interested in for several years, and I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it too much recently. And it's, it's been a great pleasure uh, to dig into this, uh, this material again and to speak with you. So thank you for having me. Right, I would love to have you on again if you like to discuss like other aspects of other things that interest you, like. I mean, mention philosophy or things like that. If there's anything that you'd like to talk about, just feel free to come on the show again. Well, thank you. I look forward to that. Right. Okay. Thank you. Have a good night then. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with one to three friends. 
I started this podcast with the intention of having awesome conversations with interesting people. And having your support means a lot. Thank you.